And right now, the Apollo Theater takes great pleasure in presenting a young man that uh, seems to be the shyest guy we ever had on stage at the Apollo Theater. We picked him up from the picket lines outside. He's a great demonstrator. That's one thing I know about him. From the hills of Arkansas, the Arkansas fellow traveler, Big Davy. I used to say hi y'all, it's just a way of greeting in Arkansas, but up here I found out say hi y'all is a way to a beating. Nineteen fifty-eight. Manhattan's Upper West Side. A young, well-to-do Jewish performer gets a taste for comedy in the village and tries out a new career as a stand-up comic. But this performer's father, who works at Columbia University, while he appreciates the performer's gift, would prefer a serious life for his progeny. Instead, the performer continues on doing the work they feel meant to do, and their diminutive firebrand of an agent helps the comedian get a serious start on a comedy career, opening for huge musicians and opening up the world to their new brand of comedy. That sounds like the plot of a show I'm pretty in love with on Amazon, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Thing is, it's actually just part of the plot of the story, of the life, of the subject of this week's episode. I don't normally do shows like this. Usually it's just me and a guest, a straight interview, usually about a favorite comedy album or an artist, or in some cases, if they've had an influential career themselves, the guests don't work. This week is something quite different, and I hope you enjoy it. Three years ago, I was sent on a quest. One interview led to my interest in a relatively unknown comedian, and my obsessive nature wouldn't let me forget this guy, even if history kind of had. He had had one torchbearer, and now he had two. I wanted to let him know we were out there, if he was out there himself. If not, I just wanted to know who he really was. If you ever heard the podcast Mystery Show, you'll know one of the reasons I couldn't put this investigation away, and why I fell down innumerable rabbit holes trying to find him. Mystery Show is one of my favorite podcasts, and its host, Starly Kine, spent six episodes trying to find answers to a range of questions that couldn't be answered on the internet. I'm not purporting to follow her rules exactly, but it does turn out that the greatest information I got was from talking to people. Or trying to. Turns out, when people aren't easy to find, that's often because they just want it that way. You're about to hear me try and unravel a mystery. This is a mystery that started, for me anyway, in 2015, when comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff came on the podcast to talk about an obscure comedian named Dick Davey. Let's, first of all, you wanted to talk about Dick Davey. Yeah. Which I'm very happy that it's one of those things that maybe a lot of our audience will not even know anything Nobody about. Nobody knows Dick Davey. Did you Google Dick Davey before? Uh... Yeah, a little bit, but I didn't get to read up that much. I just listened to what I was saying. Did you find any information Not when you much. Dick Davey? Other was... than other stuff than that some... you've written? Other than, yeah. <gasps> other than some basketball coach also named Dick Davey. Oh, yes, right. Because I was going to Google Dick Davey just to refresh my memory, and mm-hmm. I, I did and realized that I was just reading myself. I uh-huh. wrote one little mini article a long time ago. There's no additional information. This guy, Dick Davey put out two great comedy records in the mm-hmm. 60s and then vanished from the face of the earth. That's so strange. There's no information on the internet whether he's alive mm-hmm. or dead or what happened to him after, like, the 60s. Do we know where he's from? Uh, well, he was from, I believe, New York or Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. But if you listen to the comedy record, he does this, like, Cracker Barrel Southerner accent. Mm-hmm. And he sets up his act as having been from the South. I just got back from where I'm from the South and he mm-hmm. speaks in this, yeah. this drawl. 
Um, but I think he was from Pennsylvania or New York. He was like a... That's, uh, that's weird. I he, wouldn't have guessed that. He was one of many guys who was a folk singer first mm-hmm. turned comedian. As Cliff himself correctly asserts, if you search for Dick Davey on Google, the first result you're likely to get is Cliff's own article about him on the blog at WFMU. First published in January of 2007, it's a primer on this comedian with a blip of a comedic career who no one can seem to find. He cut two albums, performed entirely in character. A guy from the East Coast, Dick Davey put on an Arkansas accent and the character of a hayseed, so out of place that his comments on race relations often won the audience over in an unexpected way. He simplified the complex in a way that made it seem that even if this bumpkin thinks equality is common sense, why can't everyone else see it that way? Or some variation on that theme. I try to help out in civil rights things as much as I can, because... I figured white people have been running this world a long time. Gonna be the color folks turn soon. Yeah, and when the time comes, I just hope some of y'all remember me kindly. You know? <laughs> uh, let me have some whiskey privileges. You know? <laughs> Maybe I get to be Ralph Bunch's slave instead of Cassius Clay. You know? Yeah. That's the truth. I go to bed at night. Every night I pray to the Lord to push these freckles closer together. I do. <laughs> you finally answer my prayer, probably that Ajax fellow come by. <laughs> Mess me all up again. <laughs> they don't tell the truth on television the way they give you that. A white knight. You see how he do all that in lily white suburbs? He don't never go to watch do that thing. Uh, white knight. The white dove. You ever see that? White tornado. The white backlash. Still the house ain't clean. Uh, all the time them Indians losing on the late night movie. And some of y'all on the late night news. And... Uh, <laughs> They talk about looting, that ain't no looting, they're swapping. Yeah. All the white kids stealing black kids dances, they entitled a few new suits. Yeah. Ain't that right? After my interview with Cliff was over, I couldn't stop thinking about Dick Davey. Cliff's fascination with him was infectious. It doesn't hurt that Cliff is a comedy encyclopedia, which it made it all the more important to me that I help him find Dick Davey. In case I failed, though, I never told him that I intended to do this. Dick Davey released two albums at the height of the 60s comedy album boom. You're a Long Way From Home, Whitey, in 1966, and 1967's Stronger Than Dirt, the latter of which I just found out through playing a strange PR-based board game from the 80s called Advertising, is named for one of many old slogans for the cleaning product Ajax. I'm usually fairly hip to old commercials, but this one had passed me by. It took thinking back to the album cover of Stronger Than Dirt to finally get the parallel and get the joke. Dick Davey, a strong-chinned white guy with welcoming eyes, stands in a grayish room wearing a white suit and black string bow tie looking like the village's answer to Mark Twain or even Colonel Sanders, holding one end of a jousting lance in his left hand while the bulk of it hangs behind him and holding a half-opened knight's helmet in his right hand, resting against his right hip. This is a white knight who knows full well the irony of any white man claiming to come to the aid of anyone in dire straits while also going to the effort of reminding them what a shock it is that he's white. The difference here is that Ajax's goal is to keep things looking white, and Dick Davies' goals were explicitly and diametrically the opposite. 
On the cover of You're a Long Way From Home, Whitey, his debut 1966 album, a concerned-looking Dick Davey stands in a plaid trench coat, the protest sign that he is clearly lowered toward the ground reading Times is Changing as Dick is surrounded by some equally concerned-looking black folks dressed for a night out but clearly wanting none of what Dick Davey has to offer. This album was recorded live at the Apollo, not unique for a white performer necessarily, but it was a badge of honor for Davey, who, in Phil Berger's 1975 book, The Last Laugh, explained that he explicitly wanted to work the Apollo to bring his comedy to a larger black audience. In his opinion, they were the people who would get what he was doing best. He was empathetic, but taking a big chance, playing a hillbilly and performing before a sophisticated city crowd notorious for liking what they like and doing the opposite if they felt another way about you. The Apollo crowd had earned far more than just the right to watch what they wanted to see, but Dick Davey knew how important it was to do his comedy there and let it live or die in front of the Apollo's audience. It went well. LBJ say they all over there, they proud and serve their country. Shoot, they just figured they stand a better chance with the Kong than the Klan. At least ain't nobody over there telling them give up their guns and trust to the FBI. <laughs> that war sure gonna look pretty in Technicolor in the movies. Black man shooting a yellow man to protect a white man. <laughs> Who stole everything from the red man. <laughs> but I don't want you to think I wouldn't fight for my country. I, I would fight as soon as the government make up its mind who I should hate. <laughs> Knowing what we know, it's easy to be fascinated by Dick Davey, a white comedian who won over the Apollo audience, doing race humor that was about equality, done in a way no white guy had done it before, and that probably wouldn't have worked after he stopped doing it. Only one interview with Davey is out there, in Berger's Last Laugh. The book catches up with Davey about five years after he stopped performing and went back to teaching English in Harlem's 600 schools, which were meant for kids who were trying to get their GEDs after the public school system had failed them. It also describes a guy who, while he left it behind, had plenty of fond memories for the comedy world that he had lived for so long in. From the book. In Dick Davey's apartment was a scrapbook in black leather with gilded borders. Presenting Dick Davey, it said in one corner. It goes on to describe many clippings I've since found digitized versions of myself that don't quite do it justice. What I wouldn't give to hold that scrapbook in my hand. What shocked me most about Davey was that he was an artist who took a chance, succeeded, and then stopped. Seemingly out of nowhere. I was entranced by this comic taking a particular stereotype that a white-looking guy could easily apply to himself, giving him the liberty to play all he wanted with it. He took the position of question-asker rather than asserting heavy positions for easy punchlines. His comedy wasn't oriented around the type of generalized differences in race that saturated comedy of the 80s and 90s, and let's face it, today, it was more about asking the questions some of us still might naively ask ourselves deep down. The kind that might not warrant answers necessarily, but that speak to a general desire for everyone to give a crap about each other and be human to one another. They're the kind of questions that keep the soul alive. Dick Davey was turning these questions into comedy. When an adult man says on stage that he prayed to God to push his freckles closer together so he could live the life of a black man, it's whimsical, sad, innocent, and curious all at once. You might only get the full experience of that if you appreciate that he's a character, but even if you didn't know, you felt compelled to listen. He was taking chances, many that likely wouldn't work today, if only because nuance might sand them down. If you were paying attention, though, you'd get to the deceptively simple core of it all. Equality is a good thing, and some white people believe in it, too. Dick Davey was an ally, and didn't want you to forget it. 
whatever it took to send that point home. I have a researcher's brain, but in 2015, when Cliff came to me with this story, I didn't have a researcher's experience. In fact, it was this initial search for Dick Davey that helped making logical research connections easier for me, as I nabbed myself a few free trials to websites that let me search newspapers, census data, and basic public contact information. Making sense of what those deceptively simple pieces of information tell you is often relatively difficult, especially when you've got missing links to contend with. You could have a full name, a history of addresses that person lived at, a folder of photos of someone with that name, but until someone who knew them tells you this person is the same person as that person, you can end up spinning your wheels. Doubt is your enemy, and as it turns out, your fuel. After those trial periods were over and every variation on the search terms Dick, Richard, Davey, and Comedian yielded little more than a few advertisements for shows he had appeared in, I gave up. Okay, well, not entirely, of course, or I wouldn't be making this episode. And frankly, whenever a new research project came up, like researching my own last name for a podcast or trying to find a missing cartoonist for another podcast, well, Dick Davey wasn't far from my mind. I sent a few emails over the years to random people I thought might somehow know something about this guy with no responses. Every once in a while, the idea of Dick Davey just came back to me. I was frustrated the information wasn't out there. I kept thinking, what if there's something I missed? Or more accurately, what was it that I definitely missed? With Dick Davey, I just didn't know where to begin. What if he actually did spend some time in Arkansas, as he claimed in the Burger interview? What if his name wasn't Richard Davey, or even some variation on Richard, Davey, or even David? What if he no longer lived in New York? Is he still around? Is his search going to lead me anywhere other than a few more newspaper clippings telling me what jazz band he was opening for in 1967? No spoilers, but yes. It'll yield something more, though nothing I would expect, and at every turn, I had to question everything I thought was fact. I picked the search back up in October of 2018. I couldn't tell you why exactly. Certainly, it sat there waiting for me for quite a while. Looking back now, I sent one message to some generic email addresses at the New York City public school system to get more information on the 600 schools at some point. I also sent one to someone who commented on Cliff's WFMU post. Maybe we could chat. I sent an email to Tommy Chong's people as he was rumored to have enjoyed Dick Davies' comedy. Tommy eventually did my show, but my due diligence on the Dick Davy case was out the window because I was interviewing one of my heroes at the time and trying not to cry on microphone. In the interim, I had come upon innumerable searches that meant something to me at the time, trying to find and succeeding in finding the creators of the Mr. Silverspitz Dawson record, helping a friend find an obscure spoken word poet with whom my friend has since started correspondence with, and also trying to find out why this new wave song that I couldn't get out of my head seemed to not actually exist. This was some real Mandela effect stuff. Fortunately, since I don't subscribe to conspiracy theories, I was aware that there was one other explanation. Some of the information I had was either wrong or damn near impossible to find. I signed up again for a few of the aforementioned online services, which I won't name drop here if only because they're paid services. I had tried all of these previously, except the subscription version of the phone book, but I figured that by now, after solving a few of my own small personal mysteries, maybe the logic centers of my brain were more fully formed. I should take a moment here and let you know that a lot of the time the person you're looking for is just in the regular old phone book, even old comedians. I'm not advising you to call these people up without their permission. You know, always go through their representatives first, and then, if nothing else, write them a letter and hope they respond. The ironic thing is, we assume that, based on an age gap, there's no way that they're online. 
And we may mostly be right, except that it's easy to forget that physical phone book databases are now all on websites. The idea of wading through generic name after generic name after variation on generic name was stressing me out just thinking about it. My biggest gap, of course, was that I couldn't be sure this guy's real name was Dick Davey. If no one knew where he was, in fact, I had to assume that maybe that wasn't his real name. Here's what I did know, or thought I knew, after reading through Phil Berger's interview and doing those cursory searches. Dick Davey performed a lot. He was an opener for all kinds of musicians, jazz and otherwise. One bonus bit of information was that he was a singer himself at one point, taking the route that so many comedians did, from folk singer to ignored folk singer, to entertaining himself with jokes between songs, to getting laughs, to doing comedy and music, to finally just doing comedy. It's fascinating to be able to look at an entire genre of music, replete with its successes, its failures, and its sharp left turns, and then to see how many of those left turns went to comedy. Maybe you just have to be a little extra whimsical to play folk music, and maybe the cynicism that results from non-responsive crowds gives you a hard shell and a sense of self-effacement, and so the whimsy and pain combine to make you something else entirely. Maybe. Or maybe comedy was just more fun. With this evolution in mind, my newspaper searches for the name Richard Davey gave up some promising results, too. A Richard Davey was performing at synagogues all around the country, usually referred to as New York's Richard Davey, or a singer from New York, Richard Davey. In only one of these articles, from the Elmira Advisor in Elmira, New York, from January 15, 1958, was there a photo of a guy casually resting his chin on his hand as he looked off into the distance with a grin. Admittedly, this rough black-and-white image did look enough like Dick Davey to be a possibility, but then again, he kind of looked like a lot of white dudes at the time. And part of me really just wanted to take that and run with it. Instead, I jotted down notes from the article, which read, Richard Davey of New York City, humorist and balladeer, will be the feature attraction at Congregation Shamre Hadath's annual dinner, February 2nd at 6.30 at the synagogue. A winner of the Arthur Godfrey Talent Scout show, Davey appeared in the musical production Paint Your Wagon, and in stock company productions of No Time for Sergeants and Bus Stop. His most recent movie is Marjorie Morningstar, in which he appears in several sequences with Ed Wynn. He has performed in many nightclubs in New York, Chicago, and Detroit. That is a lot to unpack. More so if it's not the guy I'm looking for, especially given my tendency to get distracted by an incidental thread and pull on that same thread till it's too late and I've unraveled the wrong sweater. I, of course, looked up the film Marjorie Morningstar to get some idea of what stuff Mr. Richard Davey was acting in when he wasn't entertaining synagogues, and as it turns out, this newspaper clipping was more telling than you'd expect. I mean, it's abundantly clear this guy is a comedian, that his priorities lied not just with comedy as a concept, but with being seen with funny people, more than being seen as a star or even with one. Because the most glaring omission here, where he rightfully brags about working with the great Ed Wynn, is that the film's stars are Natalie Wood and Gene Kelly. Marjorie, what words are you trying to wring out of me? That I'll marry you? But it has to happen at will if you want to be clever. Don't be clever. Trying to be clever. Go oh, all right, then. Go out west. Do what your mother says. Every American should see the Grand Canyon. Why? Why did I ever meet you? Two of the biggest movie stars Maybe at the time, and this guy doesn't want you to forget that he worked with Ed Wynn. He's a guy after my own heart. Was it possible that this guy who kinda, sorta, looked like Dick Davey was the same guy? I mean, as Cliff said in our interview, Dick Davey started out as a folk singer and moved on to comedy from there. Is he the same guy who was performing in synagogues in 1963 and then by 1966, just three years later, was getting write-ups like this? Also on the same bill is a country boy comedian by the name of Dick Davey. Lumbering out to the microphone, chewing gum, and wearing heavy farm boots, 
He stammers and scratches and draws out a line of corn that leaves the city slickers pretty cold. Where's the leap? If these two are the same guy, it's one thing to be a humorist and singer and another to suddenly pretend you're a bumpkin from Arkansas and drop the guitar entirely. What motivated this change? It's also reasonable to note here that besides making it clear that Dick Davey wasn't exactly for everyone that early on, you know, leaving city slickers cold and all, that the journalist also misspelled his last name, adding an E, a common bit of confusion that helped me fill in some gaps here and there, giving me a more complete picture while still confusing plenty of things. I wasn't about to be 100% certain that Richard Davey was Dick Davey or that Dick Davey with a Y was Dick Davey with an EY. These kinds of leaps have gotten me into trouble before. I needed to be certain that I had found Dick Davey. Of course, I'd then need to figure out what to do with that information once I got it. Earlier in 2018, around April, I had a song stuck in my head. An earworm. The aforementioned New Wave song. I quite like New Wave music, but this one was driving me crazy. The chorus of Where Do We Go From Here, which gave no helpful results on Google or elsewhere, echoed in my head as I picked up the mantle of Finding Dick Davey six months later. Yes, six months later, in a time where the internet was everywhere, I was without a single idea as to what that song was. Even my musician friends had no idea what I was talking about. It didn't bode well for my search for Dick Davey. Even worse, perhaps, my unconscious brain had decided to do this the week before I had to have the rough cut of my next film released, before the midterm elections. When I was away from the editing suite, with other things to concentrate on, I was still finding myself massively distracted, choosing between thinking about a movie I couldn't touch at the moment, and a mystery I barely felt I had the capacity to approach at the time. Regardless, I went a little crazy, comparing this photo from this newspaper to the three photos I, or anyone for that matter, had of Dick Davey. His hand is hiding that striking chin, but it could be him. Slight underbite, check. Similar creases here and there on the face, check. I felt like a first-year forensic student really trying to show off, except there was no professor in the room. Just my dumb brain. At some point, the image was so burned into that same brain, I needed a break, so I decided to try and do a little original research and reach out to the one person I had ever seen claim to have met Dick Davey. A Mr. Cox had left a message on Cliff's blog entry about Dick Davey about three years after the original post, explaining... I knew Dick Davey in the mid-60s. I have autographed copies of Dick's albums and was backstage with him at the Apollo. I'd like to reconnect with Dick. On Halloween, I called up Mr. Cox. Hello. Yes, hi. I was trying to reach a Mr. Cox. This is he. Uh, I saw your information on an old blog about Dick Davey where it mentioned you might have known Mr. Davey, the comedian. I did indeed. You did. Um, at some point, I'd love to talk with you, uh, just kind of get your memories of Dick Davey, because I'm still trying to find information about him. This is an inconvenient time to call. You can call another time if you care to. I have the worst timing. I'd have to call Mr. Cox back at another time to get the scoop on Dick Davey. They sounded pretty close, so it's a safe bet he's my best link to finding out where Dick Davey is, even if I couldn't be sure that he did actually know where he was. I had a choice. Either do some more digging or just kind of call random people who seem to be associated with people named Richard Davey. I chose the latter. Sometimes the online phone book I was using will give you suggestions like maybe related to or associated with, providing some apparently convenient shortcuts with absolutely zero context. Sometimes you can glean from what you have, a shared address, a shared name, a middle person, but most of the time you're kind of winging it. So I called up some Davies in the New York area and Bupkis. I'm Jason Klom, and this is the sound of failure. We're sorry.
I cracked open the digital version of Phil Berger's book that I had borrowed from archive.org's digital library again, trying to find something I'd missed. And something jumped right out at me. Something I really should have jotted down as a genuine piece of the puzzle. As Berger describes Dick Davey, Davey, who looked like a grown-up version of Carl Alfalfa Switzer of the old Our Gang comedies, was a strapping 6'2 son of an Orthodox rabbi. An Orthodox rabbi. So intertwined is the idea of Dick Davey with that of his comedy character, The Bumpkin, that I had forgotten entirely that he was Jewish. My description earlier, comparing him to the fictional Mrs. Maisel, that was for your benefit. This early on in the search, that piece had already floated by me, and with it, the possibility that his father would have been a pretty prominent member of the community. Combining this new piece of information with my search for Richard Davey got me, again, nothing. Census results show the occupation of the parents, and not a single person with that name had a father whose job it was to be religious. Didn't matter the spelling. Was it a complete pseudonym? What if his name is Richard Jones or Smith or not even Richard, and he just kept his real name out of show business to protect his family? It is at this moment that my previous lack of attention to detail is somehow rewarded. Rewarded with something that still makes zero sense to me with my limited understanding of how public records are compiled, stored, and disseminated. On November 5th, I look again at the phone book for people named Richard Davey, hunting down the tree of related twos and associated withs, hoping to find some poor soul to call up out of the blue, and again, find nothing. As usual, once a specific search has run out, you see searches seemingly based on fuzzy logic. Results sharing part of a name, different spellings, or in this case, only sharing a first name. Richard Hoffman, born in 1929. Not related to a Richard Davey. Not associated with one either. There is, however, a new category of hint. The alias. Richard Hoffman, born March 1929. May go by Richard Davey. like the phone book was winking at me, only the wink didn't make any sense. Had this been at the bottom of every damned page of Richard Davies and I just glossed over it because it looked like yet another relative who had actually never heard of anyone named Dick Davy? It was worth a shot, and it's always better to have a specific lead, of course, but I was dubious. Mostly because hope is scary in situations like this. The U.S. Census became my friend. Like, almost literally. It's a little sad. I limited my search of Richard Hoffman's to the state of New York, assuming that his home state was likely a legitimate piece of information. You have to start somewhere. I started questioning everything else, though, on the assumption that Richard Hoffman was Dick Davey for the sake of ease. But this Richard Hoffman's father was a plumber, this one was a waiter, this one was living in upstate New York as a kid, which doesn't match up because according to the Burger interview, Dick Davey was born and raised in Manhattan. There's some hope when I find a Richard Hoffman whose middle initial looks like a D, maybe, and his father is clergy? The digital text recognition fortunately led me here, but it couldn't quite give me the name of his temple. It thinks Temple Beth El is single Bell El, but it's a synagogue. 
The letdown happens almost immediately, though, because this census matches one from earlier, in upstate New York, not in Manhattan. I don't have a ton to go off of at this point, but I have to treat the Burger interview as gospel, otherwise I won't have a perspective. I have no reason to believe his name wasn't actually Richard Davey, so anything else I find that would normally be icing I have to treat as a dessert side dish? That analogy was lost a while ago, but I think you get the point. I'm easily distracted, so signing on to jog down every new path was a bad idea. I kept coming back to the photos. I was using the cover of Stronger Than Dirt as my ultimate Dick Davey photo along with this adorable photo of him flat on his ass from the burger book. I wish I knew who took the latter, because it's great. But both of these photos helped me draw some parallels and try to get a better idea what he might look like at different ages from different angles. The things that stand out most are his strong, almost sharp chin, the way his mouth curves down even when he smiles, and his distinctive ears. Not huge, but strangely angular. It's been said that ears are unique like fingerprints, and whether that's true or not, I kept coming back to them as I looked them over, comparing them to the photo from the Elmira newspaper. By now I was pretty confident this black and white photo was him. I created a little photo collage and became increasingly confused about the fact that these two photos were almost 10 years apart. Firstly, the way his forehead is wrinkled in the 1958 photo, he looks a solid 8 or 10 years older than in the 1966 one. Secondly, in the 1966 photo, he looks to be 45, which doesn't entirely jibe with who he seems to be. On the other hand, as I flip through the newspaper clippings I've collected, I notice that among the scattershot clippings that are more than a mere mention of his name, there sat a lone interview. The only other interview I was able to find with Dick Davey, and this one was done during his career. In this article from the San Francisco Examiner, he's described as being 33 years old. Finally, a piece of the puzzle that gives me a starting point. That makes him, well, 35 in the photo on the album cover, not the 45 that the coloring and his overly expressive face seem to indicate. It's not a lot to go off of, but it's something, and frankly, it's just as useful at this juncture as calling even more people that may or may not have ever heard of Dick Davey, Richard Davey, or Richard Hoffman. After a series of busy tones, bad connections, and calls to my wife to report on an obsession that likely began to worry her for my sanity, I take another research break. There's a Richard D. Hoffman who was a World War II vet. Could that have been him? He's considerably older than the San Francisco article indicates, but he does have that sharp-looking chin in this old photo. In it, he's announced as the 50,000th Selective Service Recruit of Greater New York. Maybe he was a history-making member of the Greatest Generation. At the same time, I discover a Rabbi Angelo Davy in the census, but there's no information as to where he came from, where he went, or if he had any kids. The genealogy website that I've been frequenting is again a respite from my failed phone calls. I dig back into the couple of Richard Hoffmans I've found, and I take a look at the census results again. The upstate New York Richard Hoffman, whose father was a rabbi, just feels wrong. His father, Isidore Binswanger Hoffman, likely had the suburban life in mind for his family, and raised that Richard Hoffman as well as a brother, Daniel, only a couple of hours from where I grew up. Sure, upstate New York had plenty of outlets for comedians, but most of them came up from the city. They were almost foreign to the locals and were a novelty to visitors. I find a series of photos in a scanned yearbook from DeWitt Clinton High School in New York, and I find them because there's a Richard D. Hoffman who went there and was in high school in 1946. Let's say he was born in 1933. I guess he'd be about 13, which doesn't quite match up with the kid about to graduate. But no dice. This kid's yearbook photo doesn't seem to have the same chin or smile. And in the other pages where you find him, he's... Well, actually, one of these kids is making a really goofy face. This is also Richard D. Hoffman. He's got a real sharp chin and devilish smile. I mean, cameras lie all the time, and I guess... Well, I save the photos and add them to my ever-growing collage. With this in the back of my mind, I call some more Richard Davies, including one in Alaska 
and one who might be a Richard Davy Jr. I call a couple of Hoffmans and leave messages. I also call Mr. Cox again and leave a voicemail. The yearbook photo starts to haunt me. Two sources could be a coincidence, but three's a pattern. Three sets of photos, one of Dick Davy, one of Richard Davy, and another of Richard Hoffman, and there's very little air between them. The only problem I have is that there's not a Richard Hoffman with a rabbi father who lived in Manhattan. Plus, in this 1930 census, according to that 1966 interview, he shouldn't even have been born yet. According to that same census, Richard would have been born in 1929. 1929. That's... That's the year that Richard Hoffman from my sneaky phone book auto-suggestion was born. Still, it doesn't match the location. Could Dick Davy have lied about that too, and maybe he was never a city kid? If that's the case, though, maybe his dad wasn't a rabbi and he never was a folk singer. It's all out of the window if that's the case. Some of it, a piece of it, must be true. I pore over the genealogy stuff again, yearbooks, draft records, social security death index records, marriage records, censuses again. I even find the next census from 1940 with Isidore B. Hoffman, wife and two kids. Dad's still a rabbi, kids are still kids, and they're all living happily in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Holy shit. What, wait, is this real? Is it just the born and raised part that's a stretch for simplicity's sake? Maybe the guy on the cover of Stronger Than Dirt is just as much about keeping his lies little and white as he is about anything else. This is the first time where I really feel like I might have found Dick Davies' true identity. I'm convinced that I am closer than ever to finding out who he was. Now this is the hard part. The part I don't like thinking about. You see, because I was never certain that the Richard Hoffman, a.k.a. Richard Davy, who was born in 1929 that I found in the phone book was the same guy I've been looking for, or indeed the same Richard Hoffman I'd been researching, I kind of skirted around this part mentally. I knew it was there, but the thought of it made me sad, even though I couldn't find any solid proof of it other than this one search. But Richard Hoffman had passed away in November of 2007, ten months after Cliff had written his original blog post. I want to make it clear that I had assumed this to be a huge possibility from the beginning. I've learned that if I'm going to get my hopes up, which is inevitable, I'm going to get my hopes up while also mitigating massive disappointment. I got my hopes up that I'd find out who Dick Davey was, reserving sheer elatement if I found him to still be with us. So at this point I was still massively excited that I might be on the way toward finding Dick Davey and maybe speaking with someone who actually knew the man. I spent an entire day in the second week of November trying to hunt down his older brother, Daniel. I found a few Daniel Hoffmans here and there, but none of them know a Richard Hoffman. I find another Daniel Hoffman sharing a middle initial, seemingly, anyway, the census handwriting was never great, and a birth year with Richard's brother, and I call the first phone number on the list. No good. I call the second one. No good. I call the third one. Daniel no longer lives there. However, they do tell me where he lives now. I call that phone number, call them up, and they are unable to connect me unless I know his suite number. Of course I don't. Naturally, I'm not giving up there. So on November 9th, I draft a letter to Daniel Hoffman. Dear Mr. Hoffman, my name is Jason Klom. I'm a comedian and a comedy researcher. For the last seven years, I've interviewed comedians about comedy records on my show, Comedy on Vinyl. I'm writing you in the hopes that your brother Richard Hoffman was a teacher in Harlem, as well as a singer who went by the name Richard Davey, and later as a comedian, Dick Davey. I found numerous sources quoting a Jewish singer and comedian named Richard Davey, and then two albums by the aforementioned Dick Davey. In the only interview in any book with Dick Davey, he mentions being born and raised in Manhattan's Upper West Side to an Orthodox rabbi. 
Naturally, in my research, I ran across information about your father and yourself. I'd love to speak with you, at your convenience, about your brother. My contact information is below. Thanks very much for your time. Now, I call him your brother, knowing full well that I might have the wrong guy. But you have to be hopeful. Two days later, on November 11th, as I'm basically just waiting for the letter to be returned... This is Dick Cox, returning your call. It's my first time talking with someone who knew Dick Davey. And as I later find out, I was actually talking to Mr. Cox on the 11-year anniversary of Dick's death. So I was a United Methodist minister in Brooklyn, in Harlem. I met Dick Gregory through a friend of mine. So I got to hang out a few times with Dick Gregory and with Dick Davey. One time I can remember specifically being with him at the uh, Village Gate in, uh, in uh, Manhattan, and uh, he did a stand-up. Do you know if his real name was Dick Davey? I do not know that. That's what he went by. Uh, very much involved in the civil rights movement. Yeah. North and South. But he was a true advocate. There are a couple of things that throw me. He said that his father was an Orthodox rabbi. Do you know if that's... If that, because that's what he told the author, but I don't know if that's true. I don't know that. I don't know about that. Did he, uh, now I'm curious about the, the accent. Did he have the accent all the time, or was that put on? Oh, it was as real as far as I can do. Interesting. Huh. What reality am I living in? How can I seemingly be this close to finding the guy, only to have yet another growing tapestry unravel right in front of me? Yes, I know that's the second metaphor about unraveling, but I'm trying to mix it up. These are big pieces of information, big chunks of this guy's personality. The one bonus here is that the Dick Davey Mr. Cox is describing is 100% the guy whose albums I enjoy. He's the stand-up. The only thing that doesn't match is everything else he told Phil Berger in that interview. Which calls into question everything I've put together and means that I might have been calling a bunch of poor, unsuspecting Hoffmans for nothing. Shalom. You have reached Temple Beth El of Ithaca, New York. Our regular office hours are Monday from 9 to 1, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 9 to 5, and Friday from 9 to 3. The next day I leave a message at his father's old synagogue in upstate New York. Maybe finding out a little bit more about his father, if there was anything out there, would give me some kind of picture of who this guy was. Or at least who Richard Hoffman was, because let's face it, even if Richard Hoffman wasn't Dick Davey, he was still my only lead and I was irretrievably fascinated. I had let this search take over my life, and that wouldn't end for several weeks, if it ever actually did. Between editing opportunities, every free moment was spent researching Dick Davey, or thinking about Dick Davey, or thinking about researching Dick Davey. At one point, I actually almost verbalized the words, Dick Davey's like a friend, but would have literally been doing so out loud to only myself in my little office. My sanity was well and truly stretched. While I never technically lost sleep over this, I did one night dream in only news clippings. Dick Davey was in my head. It's also worth pointing out that these days did not feel like days. They stretched on and outward, and my memory of them now is of living in a haze. I was also going through an unrelated depression, and while this kept my spirits somewhat afloat during this low period, they also added to an unavoidable sense that this search might become the rest of my life. Maybe I wouldn't ever crawl out of this research hole. If I never got 100% proof that Dick Davey was Dick Davey, then I might. But I digress. Actually, that's kind of how I operate. Digression, mostly with the goal of distraction. Not from the main plot, but distraction anytime I can no longer see the forest for the trees. 
Focusing too much can give your mind sulfur burn-in, and that one thing might be all you see when you close your eyes. Speaking of which, those yearbook photos? I'd recompare photos every day or two, ask people their opinions. People widely agreed it was Dick Davey in most of them. And I'd come back to the details. Richard Hoffman's 1946 yearbook photo sits next to your typical block of text, speaking of his accomplishments. Richard D. Hoffman, Dickie Boy. Basketball teams, tryouts, Clinton News, B-Man, whatever that is, assistant editor, sports editor. And it ends with what seems to be his life goal. To write books and books and books. Love is where you find it. I'd since discovered that Isidore Hoffman had taught at Columbia and was a well-known pacifist and socialist, and that his son Daniel had also gone to Columbia. And seemingly, so had Richard. But next to this Richard D. Hoffman's block of text was a single word, Oberlin. For those who don't know, like I didn't, Oberlin is in Ohio. There's another Richard Hoffman in New York at the same time, about the same age. Had I stumbled upon his doppelganger with the same name? That seemed very unlikely, but I wouldn't be settled until I knew with absolute certainty who was whom. At some point I'm so confused, I just start writing notes that don't make a whole lot of sense. Can I find a link between Richard Hoffman at Columbia University and the Richard Hoffman at DeWitt Clinton High School? The DeWitt Clinton profile of him lists Oberlin as his college, but that's in Ohio. More likely that kid happens to look like Dick Davey because the other stuff matches a Richard Davey, at least. Richard D. Hoffman Isidore's was possibly born in Utica, not born and raised in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I couldn't think straight at this point. I wanted so badly for these little pieces I was finding to all belong to the same puzzle, but there they were, floating in a black void in front of my eyes, waiting to be put together. And then, on November 14th, I ignored a call from an unknown number. A minute or two later, my phone buzzed. I had a new voicemail. Uh, Jason Clam, uh, this is uh, Daniel Hoffman. You wrote me a letter about my late brother, Richard David Hoffman, otherwise known as Richard Davey or Dick Davey. I started to tear up. I had to take a minute. I couldn't call him right back. I'd sound like an ass. Instead, I wait an entire day. The following day, I would call Daniel Hoffman and try and get 100% confirmation. As far as I was concerned, this voicemail made it only 99% and I needed to cross that finish line. About an hour after my call with Daniel, I'd find the name of my new wave song. Seemingly, something about the call or the search in general had cleared my head. The song's chorus is actually much more appropriate than the defeated sounding where do we go from here that I thought I'd remembered. The lyrics, the actual lyrics, are where does it go from here. Where does it go from here? Does it down to the lake I feel? I'm all over the place right now. I'm, I'm, I'm worse than doing an interview with somebody I love. I'm just like beyond flustered right now. Here we go. Calling Daniel Hoffman. Now, I was born July 7th, 1926 in uh, Utica, New York. Uh-huh. And uh, that was for about three years. And then Richard, my brother, was 
two years and eight months younger than me, two years and eight months younger. The one interview uh, with your brother indicated that he was born and raised in Manhattan. He wasn't born and raised. He wasn't born there and he wasn't raised there, <laughs> except after a certain age. Uh, Richard, uh, I was trying to think, uh, he played two nightclubs uh, in San Francisco as a professional entertainer. One of them was called The Purple Onion. Have you ever heard of it? I, I have. One of my favorite albums is recorded there. And there was another one, another big-time nightclub at that time in San Francisco. you remember the name of it? it Maybe The Hungry Eye, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. He did. He went on tour. He went, went to various places. And I, I think he started out as a... Uh, he played the guitar, and I think he sang... Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure when the, the, the comic part came in, the comedy part came in, but he was a teacher. In New York City, uh, if a student is extremely be uh, poorly behaved and there's nothing they can do to straighten them out, they send them to a 600 school. Uh, Richard was six two or six two and a half and he was uh, pretty athletic uh and uh, so he would uh, uh the, everybody's favorite period at school was recess sure <laughs> <laughs> and at recess he would engage in basketball and other activities and uh, he he was kind of popular because he, he was a regular guy he could, he could do some of the uh, some of the uh, sports activities during recess and during regular class period, he entertained. He, uh, uh, I think, he, he got arthritis in his fingers, so he couldn't. Or he got something in his fingers, so he um, played the guitar after a while. But he, he could tell. He could still sing, and he could still. Particularly, he could tell, tell jokes, you know, as you say, like yourself, yeah. it was a comic. And so, uh, basically, in the classroom, he was an entertainer. Uh, in the recess, he was an athlete. <laughs> and yeah. he survived not only each day, but he survived the whole time he was there. At one point earlier, he'd gone on tour and gone various places as a... I guess as a main attraction, uh, uh -huh. I guess you call it a solo or something. I, I'm not, I'm not really very familiar with his, with his uh, theatrical career. <clears throat> uh, I, I guess you could say I'm not terribly familiar with any of, of his story. He and I were really not very close. We were, you know, we, we got along, I guess, for the most part, but that's about it. So, sure. uh, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't uh, give you uh, a delving into his personality. Daniel and I talked for about 45 minutes. Not so much a pre-interview as just a nice conversation. Establishing a rapport, getting to know him, and really getting to know the Hoffman family, which I really loved. I wish it wasn't so loud out here. It's distractingly loud, but not so distracting that I'm, I'm too stupid to realize what that was. Um, those are my keys jingling. I... I, I... <laughs> This is so ridiculous. I, I hate being in a rush after this. I don't have five seconds to... You know, no, I do. Um, that's Dick Davies' brother. That was Dick Davies' brother. 
and I know a little bit more about Dick Davey. I, he, you know, Daniel obviously, you know, explained that they maybe not, weren't the closest, but he's going to get me closer to understanding more about him. You know, I mean, that's that's all we're going to get. We're never going to get anything from from the horse's mouth. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's it's 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 great. This is wonderful. I mean, this is this, you know, it's the closest I'm going to be able to say to I found Dick Davey. Um, so I mean, I did. I, you know, found Dick Davey. Sorry, it's not as exciting as finding a serial killer, but um, this is way more interesting to me anyway. I arranged with Daniel to have a more lengthy, in-depth interview with better equipment and with more of my research materials in front of me. Kindly, he obliged. And uh, he was on Merv Griffin's show before it became a national show. Uh, I don't think he was ever on it after uh, Merv Griffin became national and you know, syndicated. I'm very curious. So your father was an Orthodox rabbi. What kind of... No, 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 wrong. No, okay. Okay, that's, that's, this is the confusion. He was conservative. Okay. You know, Orthodox conservative and reform, and then there's a branch of reform called Reconstructionists. Okay. And my father was sort of, he was ordained conservative, but he later was acted more reform and his reconstructionist. We belong to a reconstructionist synagogue. Interesting. In okay. 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 See that clears a few things up. That's see that's so so the orthodox part is all wrong. What's the presence of humor in the family? I want to know what your family's sense of humor was like. Sense of humor. Well I mean my immediate family. Yeah, I would my say the mother, immediate my family. My mother and my brother and, and myself, right? Yeah. I, w- I would say that there was some uh, uh, sense of humor, but not very well developed. Uh, they were pretty serious people, my parents, and uh, I don't think humor was a really major part of their life. Uh, they uh, that, and there was one occasion <laughs> when, when there was some humor unintended. Uh, they went to a Yiddish uh, play on Lower East Side, New York. Uh, they, they had uh, Yiddish theater there, mm-hmm. and both of my parents knew a word here and a word there of Yiddish, <laughs> but basically they didn't know the language. And they laughed at all the wrong places, and they did not laugh when everybody else was laughing. Oh, um, no. This is secondhand, I'm being I'm, I'm told about it. Now, Richard, um, I don't recall that when I knew him by, by living in the same household as he did, I was not particularly humorous. Both of us had some sense of humor, but it was not all that well developed. He, he, he went and developed his sense of humor to a very great extent and very successfully, mm-hmm. as I understand it. I never, ever uh, observed him in, in performance. I never went, attended any of his recitals or performances or whatever you want to call them. Um, so, uh, sense of humor was not uh, major the lives of any of the four of us that I can recall uh, uh, from first-hand observation. 
as I said, he and I were never what you call close uh, uh, brothers. And, and so he didn't confide much in me, and I didn't confide much in him. And, you know, we pretty much went our own separate paths, uh, separate ways. He was performing very young. A lot of these articles point out that he was, you know, he's in his early 20s, like maybe right out of or still in college when he was performing. Um, but what's interesting to me, so you never saw him perform. Was there a reason for that? Or was it just because you weren't close? I, I don't really know why. As far as I know, uh, can recall, he never invited me to any of his events. Uh and therefore, uh, that would, uh, if he had invited me, uh, I might have gone. Yeah. Uh, I, I might have. I, I don't know for sure I would have, but I probably would have, because he still he was my brother. If he invited me to come, I think I would have come. Back. My recollection is he never, ever, a single time, invited me to any public performance on his part. Hmm. Uh, so that would be one reason I didn't go, and I... Another reason, I guess, was we weren't very close, and I wasn't sure I was all that interested. <laughs> That's fair. That's and following his career um, as as a uh, if, if I if we uh, had been on real good terms and been close, I would have been of course interested in his career, and I would of course wanted to go and watch him and listen to him. Yeah, uh, but that wasn't the case, and so he didn't ask me, so I just let it go, and I ever uh, observed him in performance. Do you know why he changed his name, uh, at least for the sake of performance? Do you think it was to help the maybe make not make the, the big rabbi look bad, or do you think it was just a matter of trying to fit in? Uh, that's always been somewhat of a mystery uh, to me. I never... Uh, spent much time on it because I didn't think it was terribly important. It was something he wanted to do, and I just accepted it. You know, it seemed to me a little bit strange in a way, but uh, but basically there was no problem, and he wanted to do it. He did it. Why he wanted to do it, I have really the slightest idea. I'm afraid I'm a big fat zero on that one. I, I don't <laughs> know why. Do you ever remember him talking about being in a film? Never. Interesting. <laughs> I'm betting, my guess is, if he's like me, when I was young, uh, he was probably an extra in it and said, yeah, I was in a scene with Edwin, why not? I spoke to somebody who knew him only as Dick Davey. I spoke to somebody, this gentleman was, um, I cannot remember the denomination of Christianity, but he was a reverend, and he would sometimes have dinner with your brother, and the, the things that never come up came up, again, they knew each other, they hung out enough, and he didn't know that he was Jewish, he didn't know that he wasn't from Arkansas. Uh, that accent was there. Did he ever have an, th th this Arkansas accent that he apparently had throughout interviews and things? Did he was there ever an accent that came up when you spoke with him? I, I I'm hearing about this Arkansas thing for the first time <laughs> just now. No, I don't know anything about an Arkansas accent at all. The other parallel there is. Your father, you can see him developing uh, what you were talking about earlier, but like becoming a, a highly respected pacifist and anti-war activist. Yes. And then your brother, I'm not going to necessarily compare the work, but there are parallels in that your brother was so concerned with, with peace among 
uh, blacks and whites that he was doing similar stuff, but doing it strictly with comedy. Okay. I, I can accept that, but I, I didn't know that. Right. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're telling me some stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear, but I just never was aware of it. And, uh, let's see, uh, he was married, uh, I think her name was Ronnie. Uh, I think they got a divorce. He was right. It cost me $8 to find this out by buying a four-week subscription to the New York Times, but in 1959, Richard Hoffman, our Dick Davey, married Ronnie Coppelson of Michigan. Richard's father, Isidore, presided over the wedding, and Daniel was best man. My favorite part of this $8 news clipping is the end. The bride graduated this year from Adelphi College. She studied also at the University of Michigan. Her husband graduated from Columbia. He is an English teacher in the New York public school system and is also a guitarist, known professionally as Dick Davey. I shouldn't drag this out any further for you, but there was a piece of information I may have left out of the previous call. What you heard was seeming absolute confirmation that Richard D. Hoffman, an entertainer, went by Dick Davey. All the pieces have fallen into place, except for one or two bits. When we get together, if you want, we can listen to one of his albums or some selected tracks. I would be happy to play those for you. Okay, well, I would be interested because I've never heard of him. In fact, I, until you mentioned, I never even knew he made any uh, recordings. Yeah, uh, two two records. He did two of them. Um, they're, okay. They're, well, they're both great. I'd def definitely be interested in, in hearing them. Uh, just sort of out of curiosity, uh, the whole other reason. But uh, he was, after all, biologically certainly my brother, and uh, uh, so, in spite of the fact that we never were close, I still have a, a, a mild interest in him and his career. You have to understand, I'm a completionist. I wasn't sure where to go for this information. This was the closest person even if they were a bit estranged, to Dick Davey on the entire planet, and I was fortunate enough to talk with him. But I've gone this far. I have to get it right, so I kept searching. In the meantime, I had scheduled a call to Daniel's daughter, Sharon, to get some information on the Hoffman genealogy. At least two books were written about prominent Hoffmans, one about one of Richard's aunts and her years in Israel, and another about his father, Isidore. There's also a collection at UPenn relating to the whole family. Out of seven linear feet of correspondence and other documents, there's one folder labeled Richard Davey, a.k.a. Richard Hoffman. One piece of the puzzle I knew I'd never have was knowing just what Richard's relationship was to his father. The estrangement also ran to Isidore, and while I kept wondering whether it was because he had chosen to be a comic or some argument I'd never know the details of, I did find one little snippet of what their relationship seemed to be like before they stopped talking. From the Columbia Daily Spectator, Wednesday, April 18th, 1951. Hoffman's son lectures pacifists on point four. Substituting for his father, Rabbi Isidore Hoffman, Richard Hoffman spoke before the pacifist group on the point four program, a positive idea. Asserting that a majority of the American people remain apathetic to the effort for world peace, he outlined a plan for strengthening the American peace offensive, calling for an increase in foreign recovery funds from millions to billions, expansion of the European exchange program, revitalization of American efforts against Soviet ideological warfare, 
and sharper attention by Americans to peace threats inherent in the attitude of men of the McCarthy-MacArthur faction. I got on the phone with Sharon to see what she'd recommend about trying to find more information about her mysterious uncle. I can't say that I knew my uncle really well. Mm -hmm. I saw him when I, I used to go to New York, and so I visited him a couple of times when I went to New York, and we just hit it off, and I think he got a kick out of just seeing the family resemblance. Okay. And so then we, yeah, then we, and this was, not only when I was a kid, but then when I was an, an adult, a young adult, and I was in New York, and I would see him. And so then we started this correspondence, the old-fashioned kind, where you write letters and put stamps. And he would share his poetry with me, which I had no idea about. So I learned about him more on these New York visits and then through our correspondence. And, and then I came to find out that he was estranged from everybody in his family. He was married once, and I was in touch with my my Aunt Ronnie, uh -huh. his ex-wife, and he had one child, and they they were estranged. So he had something going on, which I don't know what it was, that he just kind of pushed people away. But my Uncle Richard's uncle, Leon, mm -hmm. and myself, who lived to almost 101, he and I were basically the only family members that Dick Davey kept in touch with okay. that I'm aware of. The last time I visited him, he's passed away quite a while ago now, mm -hmm. but the last time I visited him in New York in his apartment, which he had had for many, many years, he spoke of things that were so similar to my dad. They even had the same mannerisms uh -huh. that I thought these two men would be shocked that they're estranged if they knew how much they have in common. Uh -huh. they, both, they both supported liberal causes and were very big into donating to things they believed in, generous, and cared a lot about social activism. Both both of them very much, even though they hadn't been in touch in decades. So that clearly, I think, came from the family. Yeah. 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 But I think also they were similarly wounded. I This is the impression I have from knowing both of them, is that they were pretty traumatized, I think, from their childhoods, and it came out in very, very different ways. So my dad shut down emotionally. I would say he's always been kind of this emotionally detached person. He went into the law, like a very cere cerebral kind of enterprise. And then my uncle, Dick Davey, he went the opposite way, very emotive and expressive and creative. So he wrote poetry, he did comedy, and I think that was his outlet for what happened mm -hmm. coming out of family life. They were sort of two sides of the same coin in a way. Yeah. He was a teacher, too. Did did you ever talk much yes. about his teaching work? Yes. I know he taught in one of the PS, PS something. I don't know which one in New <laughs> right. York, but I know he did that for many, many years. Were you just writing letters back to him and he would send you letters, but also send you poems and, and, and things yes. in addition? Yes, and if I recall, I mean, they're all, I have them, but they're in a box somewhere. Um, but if I think a lot of them were, the poems were typed out on a typewriter, so I think they were things that he had, and then he was sharing them with me. Okay. Not like he whipped off a poem and put <laughs> it in the letter, but, but that he was, yeah, he was sharing himself, which it felt, it was a very sweet relationship, and he had a, he had a longtime girlfriend, and I can give you her information if you want, and I, I, I'm not sure if she's still around, okay. but they, um, yeah, they went out for many, many years. And the, the, the latter years of his life, mm -hmm. I was in grad school, so I was kind of a busy grad student. And there was a period of time where we 
lost touch. Mm-hmm. And I remember, t- I remember talking to him on the phone. That was the last time I had any interaction with him. I was talking to him on the phone where he had just, I think, gotten out of the hospital. He had had hip replacement surgery or something like that. And so then I found out from Lillian, his longtime girlfriend, that he had died. And she, she found me finally. And she said he had lost my current information somehow and he mm-hmm. had really tried to get a hold of me mm. because he he had gone into I think from his apartment into assisted living so he had done the kind of the decline in his later years and knew he didn't have long and I felt really sorry sure. that I had lost touch and didn't didn't have that communication that he was after and I also it was really warmed my heart that he wanted to get a hold of me of course. Too. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Man. I don't remember what finally took his life, mm-hmm. but I think he was on this just kind of a little bit of a downhill like happens to people as they get in their older years. I'm curious uh, if you've got any stories, just some good memories of him, if you're comfortable talking about them. Anything, any good memories you have of spending time with him? And he sounds like an inspirational guy. So I'm just curious. Yeah, I do. I I do remember him coming to visit, and uh-huh. he was just a fun, nice guy. And then when I was in my twenties, probably, I remember a visit with him in New York, and he. I just remember him looking at me and just the getting the biggest grin because. You know, at that point, he had been estranged from everybody for a long yeah. time, his own son included. And I just, he got such a kick out of the family resemblance. And he and I really, there's a picture of us then, too, where you really can see the family resemblance. Yeah. And I think I think for him, that was, that was special. And it was for me, too. And it was especially special to me knowing that he was friends with almost nobody in the family. And I, I don't really know why he carved out a place for me, but he did for whatever reason. Yeah. And so that, that always warmed me that we had that. And I remember that my, my dad thought that was good too. Even though he was estranged from his own brother, he yeah. supported me having a relationship with my uncle did he have any kind of an archive? Did he have any like scrapbooks? Because that's stuff that I'm always curious because you never know where that stuff's going to go. That's a great question. If he did, I never saw it. It's not mm-hmm. something I remember looking over with him when I visited. Sure. But if if Lillian is still alive, mm. she would probably know or have it. The picture Sharon painted for me was the one I was waiting for. This whole time I had wanted to know Dick Davey but was kept at a distance, and suddenly I was being let in on something special. She was in a unique position, knowing and loving Richard as family, but having the distance many of us have from aunts and uncles. We have the luxury of less baggage to deal with, and it sounds like Dick was a good uncle and a good friend. Naturally, I had to find Lillian. With my trial periods ending on various resources, I did one last search with only one promising result. The phone book can't necessarily tell you how long someone has been somewhere, whether they've moved elsewhere or moved on. So I called the one number I found. Hi. Please leave a message. Thank you. Uh, I'm a researcher, and I've been researching. Uh, Richard Hoffman, Sharon Hoffman, uh, did tell me I might want to try and speak with you. Uh, So this is the number I found. I hope this is the right number, and I'd love to speak with you when you have some time. My phone number is 310. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Hi. Sorry for the extended message. Is this Miss Richmond? 
Yes, it is. Of course, I love to talk about him. Yeah. When would be a good time to speak? We can speak now. Met him at Otley, a church. It was the first Universalist church on Central Park West, which had Wednesday night uh, socials for middle-aged people. And he was, at that time, he was a teacher in New York public school system. Uh, He had been doing that for quite a few years because uh, his comedy, he said that it got kind of killed when Dr. King was assassinated. Uh Uh-huh. He couldn't really continue with his kind of comedy, which was unique, and he didn't think he could, you know, be funny anymore in that in that uh, style. So that so he went back to teaching, which he had sort of had as a fallback career. Mm-hmm. And so since since then, he didn't really do comedy anymore. I never saw him do his comedy. I only heard his albums. Did he talk much about his years as a comedian or a performer at all? Not much. I mean, you know, he was sad that he had to leave it behind. There was a newspaper article about him. Um, This was after I met him. um, I was really surprised to... You know, see a newspaper article about Whitey at the Apollo. Uh huh. I think it was in the Daily News. Uh huh. And it was just, you know, a story about this guy who, you know, who had played at the Apollo. It was uh, just a, a very strange. I remember <laughs> calling him from work. He was retired and I was still working. <clears throat> and I called him and said, Did you see this? So that was, you know, there wasn't really much to say. He, his, his, his career was cut short by that event. Was he comfortable not performing? If you knew, like, I, well, I he dealt with it. You know, he lived, he lived his life, and he dealt with it. I think he was sad that, you know, he couldn't because he loved it. He, he obviously was good, and he was doing well. And he was it was cut short. Yeah. So so it was a blow that he got over, and um, you know he was okay. Not only his fallback, but his his passion both involved at least a touch of uh, you know. Well, I would say the comedy definitely involved had a civil rights bent to it, obviously. And then his work was with you know disadvantaged kids. I mean, he must have mm-hmm. he must have loved doing that, even if it was hard. Yes, in in a, in a way he did. He was very good at mentoring students who had some kind of creative ability. <clears throat> there was one kid he loved who who uh, was able to draw. Now, these were teenage kids. Sure. Once in a while, you get a gifted student, and he tended to throw himself into working with that student. Mm-hmm. He wasn't great at his normal teaching, kind of, you know, keeping attendance and sending in <laughs> reports. He wasn't good at that uh-huh. stuff too, at all. Was he too creative, do you think? Well, he was, create, he was creative, and he always wrote. He wrote a lot of poetry. That, that he did continue to do. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I don't know. Sharon told you that? She mentioned that. She mentioned he would send her a poem whenever he wrote her or every once in a while. I could send you. I I made a small collection of his poems after he died. Oh, my. At his, we had a, a, he had been living in at an assisted living uh, place on 46th Street. So we had a memorial service down in the village where I live. Uh-huh. And I I just made copies of these and, you know, gave them to whoever wanted them. I could send you one of those if I would, you'd like. I would be honored. That would be okay, wonderful. Okay, sure. He would, be, he would be happy to have someone read his poems. They're just on my shelf doing nothing. After he died at the assisted living place where he lived, they had a newsletter, like a monthly, I guess, newsletter. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got the editor of that newsletter to include one of his poems each month. Oh, that's wonderful. So she she did. In fact, in fact, it wasn't after he died. I, we started doing it before he died, so he was able to see his poem actually published, oh. and he got a big kick out of it. That's that. wonderful. Do you know which school or schools he taught at? Because I would love to find one of his students or a few of his students. To um, talk to. It was a... <laughs> It was a school in Harlem mm-hmm. that was a special school for kids who had dropped out uh-huh. and were coming back to get their GED. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't remember what it was called. Okay, but it, w- it wasn't part of the main school system. So Sharon did mention a little bit of estrangement. Did he? Was that something that he talked about? That I mean, yeah, I assume yeah, it would have affected yeah. him quite a bit. He was expected to become a rabbi. That was when he was young. He was kind of, you know, on that path to become a rabbi. Uh huh. And then he said he just realized it wasn't who he was. Yeah. And and he wanted to do stand up comedy, which was uh, not not that all that acceptable to his family. Yeah. Did... So it wasn't much closeness there. I've always been interested in stand-up comics since since I knew him. Uh-huh. You know, I, I watch stuff like uh, there's a new comedy show on, I think it's on HBO, The Comedy Cellar. Yeah. Where they, they have these comics every week. Uh, it's just it's just a new show. And I, yeah, I watch all that stuff because of him. I, you know, it's just, it's interesting to me and um, makes me think of him. So, he, yes, he would have liked all that. So he was interested in, in who was new and who was upcoming? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, I mean, not necessarily that he's, you know, he wasn't necessarily a fan, but he was always interested to see who was a successful comic and what kind of comedy they did. He studied acting I think it was the Stella Adler Studio. Wow. Is that the... That yeah, the yeah, that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he, he, he did study acting there. I know he went for commercials. Okay. I know he was... He, you know, he, he would go for auditions for commercials and uh, things. And he was... Sub- his, his main... Rival and Andy Griffith uh-huh. got got the part that he was supposed to get. Oh, really? 
I have an album. It's a big leather album that, that some previous girlfriend had gotten for him. Mm-hmm. And he had all these, he had all his clippings. Yeah. So I have that. You do. Right here. And here is Whitey at the Apollo in the Village Voice, New York Post, September 7th, 1967. I have here a clipping from um, October 4th, 1984 from... West Side Sports, it says. I, I think this is some kind of um, local West Side paper. Mm-hmm. And Richard wrote, it's by Richard Davey, Indiana Warbler Flies Sideways. And it's a long poem to uh, Larry Bird. Really? I, I, yeah, he was... <laughs> He loved Larry Bird. He was a big sports fan. Mm-hmm. Huge sports. Any kind, anything with a ball, he would watch. And parents and neighbors for integrated quality education. Dear Mr. Davey, care of Art Stoyer, how can I possibly tell you how much all of us enjoyed your performance the other night for equal? Oh, I guess he did a benefit. In fact, the word enjoy doesn't begin to convey the way you made us feel. Anyway, nice, nice thank you letter. In the one interview, so there was a book called The Last Laugh by a guy named Phil Berger who interviewed him in about yes. 75. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you a funny story about that. Please. Um, when I met Richard at the church, and he was charming me, you know, he decided he got, I was worth <laughs> his time, he was (laughs) putting on the charm, Um, in the course of telling me about himself, he said that there was this book that had just been published about the comedians. Mm -hmm. What was it called? Uh, The Last Laugh. The Last Laugh. And he said he was featured in, you know, in that book. And um, so I made a mental note of that because... I'm, you know, going to date this guy, and who knows who he is. <laughs> so <laughs> the next day, I, I went to the bookstore where, right where I worked on uh, Columbus Circle. It was a big bookstore, and there, sure enough, was the book on the shelf. And I went in there with that whole, not the whole book, but the whole, you know, part that applied to him, and it even had a picture of him. Mm-hmm. So, so he was legitimate. Right. So I knew he was who he said he was. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was that was my reassurance that I wasn't talking to some you know maniac who was going to kill me. <laughs> Easy as it might be for me, a comedy lover, to concentrate on how sad it is that Dick Davy stopped doing comedy. A few things are clear. First, he might have technically stopped doing comedy, but Richard Hoffman never stopped being Dick Davy. He made Lillian laugh, and I'm guessing she returned the favor. Second, he continued his work of helping people who needed it, doing his best to keep his classes lively and entertaining. Dick Davy was in there, too. Lastly, and most importantly, he stepped off the stage, found Lillian, and never let her go. 17-year-old Richard D. Hoffman was right. Love is where you find it.
right, uh, here it is. Hi Jason, I enjoyed talking to you today. Here are the poems I promised, as well as the Larry Bird clipping. Richard got such a kick out of uh, having it published. God, he loved basketball, and football, and tennis, soccer, golf, baseball. Here's an interesting tidbit. Richard did not have his own albums. He had lent them to, to girlfriends over the years, and eventually never got them back. <laughs> Typical of him. <laughs> Here we go. His own personal clipping out of his own... His own, um, scrapbook. Holy shit. Um, I'm bad at appreciating things as I have them, but... I mean, I, I, you read the one interview with him, and it describes his scrapbook, and... I mean, Dick Davey touched this. I mean, I know Dick Davey touched this. This is amazing. I mean, this is one of the things that's got to go in my own scrapbook now. Like, I... It's so funny, he's like, I am the least sportsy person on the planet, but to have this in front of me, I don't care. Like, the, he, he wrote these, these two long columns of, of, of poetry about something that meant so much to him. Um, it ends with the word chutzpah, and he makes Larry Bird one word. <laughs> Having a piece of Dick Davies' actual scrapbook made him infinitely more real and made me feel even more spoiled. I am, of course, because maybe Larry Bird needs to see this poem more than I do. If there's a way that can happen, I'll do it. But at the end of the day, I finally get to see who Dick Davey was when he was neither Richard Hoffman or stand-up Dick Davey or even musician and struggling actor Richard Davey. As much as was possible, I now knew who Dick Davey was. Sure, there are some loose ends, but none that can dissuade me from knowing that I had finally found him. Better still, I managed to fight the what-do-I-do-now feeling that wanted to creep in and just kept searching. I've amassed a number of clippings and bits of information that I don't have a complete picture of, and I'm hoping to make filling in those blanks a part of my work with this podcast. Over the next weeks and months, I'm going to slowly add my research materials to an online archive at bit.ly forward slash Dick Davey. You'll also be able to find that at comedyonvinyl.com, but there's a shortcut, bit.ly forward slash Dick Davey. And if you've got anything about Dick Davey, please email me, Jason at ComedyOnVinyl.com. I had found Dick Davey. And he was sitting there this whole time. That's how it goes. This whole thing would have felt relatively incomplete, though, if I didn't tie up one loose end. Remember how I said that Cliff Nesteroff didn't know I had taken on the mantle of this quest for Dick Davey? Well, throughout the case, I was trying to get a hold of Cliff. I didn't get any responses, so I assumed that Cliff was so busy on his next project that he didn't have time to respond, which I get. I'm excited when people I like are busy working on something new. But it turns out that both the number and email I had for him were bad. Sorry to the person I texted out of nowhere. Thanks to friend of the show, Dan Pasternak, I emailed Cliff's new address, and what do you know? He had a minute to talk with me. Well, the thing that was cool about him is that uh, his comedy records or at least that one that I owned, Stronger Than Dirt, mm -hmm. um, holds up pretty well compared to other comedy records of that era, as I remember. And um, a lot of the, those guys who I research or celebrate, I don't ever mean to um, defame them, but they are not necessarily funny, or they're not necessarily funny anymore. Right. And he seemed to stick out as somebody who um, was still funny and so interesting as this sort of white 
uh, Dick Gregory talking about civil rights stuff was, yeah. uh, you know, unique. Yeah, I, I wanted to kind of just let you know that I had, at the very least, figured that part out so that uh and talk to you because yep. you're, you're the you're the reason i ended up doing this because i got way too obsessed way quick <laughs> well congratulations on cracking the code and learning <laughs> the answer to to the mystery right. i've forgotten uh, most things about uh dick davy mm-hmm. uh, but uh but i'm glad that you picked up the ball did you learn who he played the apollo with uh, oh, know? please tell me because I did not. That did not come up anywhere I saw. So Dick Davy, when he played uh, the Apollo, I think that record that's recorded the Apollo is more than one performance. I okay, believe it's sure. an amalgamation of several different. Because he was not a headliner; he was just uh, you know the white guy on the bill. Right. And I think he was doing like ten ten minutes each night. But you know, when you did the Apollo, you'd be booked for a week, sometimes two weeks, and you often did more than one show in the same evening. Right. But he was booked on a show with uh, Brooke Benton. I don't know if you know who that is. Brooke Benton had a big hit, uh, Rainy Night in Georgia. And the guy who wrote Rainy Night in Georgia actually just died, a guy named Tony Joe White. Um, But Brooke Benton had a big hit for Atlantic Records called Rainy Night in Georgia. He was playing the Apollo that night. Dick Davey was playing the Apollo that night. Uh, The Orlans, who were a famous uh, um, girl group. And then Ike and Tina Turner. We're playing. With Holy Dick shit. Wow. Yeah. Not long after my call with Cliff, I ordered a recently released Blu-ray from a 4K transfer of Marjorie Morningstar, you know, the film starring Edwin and Dick Davey. I scrubbed through the whole thing, looking for tall, dark-haired guys standing anywhere in the vicinity of Edwin. Now, I'll be honest, I wouldn't have had my own IMDb page for a long time if it weren't for putting my extra work online, and I've done a lot of it. So my instinct was that Richard Davies' He Appears in Several Sequences with Edwin was a way of talking around the truth. Even with my skillful ability to spot someone as an extra once I know their face, the likelihood that he was more than a speck in a crowd somewhere was low. Okay, but not impossible. About 56 minutes into the movie, Edwin is performing for a group of people at a resort, pretending to be a matador, first to a cow and then to two people dressed as a bull. Throughout the scene, the ring is flanked by very white men in serapes and sombreros holding large pikes. One of them is having a gay old time watching Edwin ham it up. I ran it by Sharon, and she agrees. That is absolutely Dick Davy. I'll put some stills up online so you can see them, and who knows, maybe you'll see him in some film he didn't get the chance to brag about. Needless to say, again, Dick Davy was a man after my own heart. Which leads me to my one final thought. There's one piece left to this mystery. Where did he teach? What schools? Who were his students? This is one thing that no one seemed to know in any of my interviews. So I need your help. Were you a student at a 600 school in the 60s or 70s? Do you know someone who was or someone who taught there or someone who works in those districts now? I want to hear from you and whomever you know. I want to know more about the people Dick Davey taught and performed for in a classroom setting. Furthermore, if you have access to the archives of Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, the Gary Moore Show, or the first non-national Merv Griffin show, you can help too. One family member tells me that Dick might have starred in an unaired pilot for the 70s show McCloud and that he claimed to have been a Marlboro Man. I acknowledge that these things are hard to research and I don't deny that I tried in vain to find something solid about them, but I'm hoping we can find out more. I'd like the full picture. In the meantime, I'll settle for the complex one I already have, 
and take a break from dreaming of newspaper clippings. Boy's Poem by Artie Hoffman Shy youngster once upon a time, a poem yearned to write. Imagined meadows, orchards, trains, but nothing came out right. Would cease but ere young patience spent, did try a few more lines. Tis blind this wind, too sweet this beat, did try a few more rhymes. Did cease, did roam, did spy approach of yonder pregnant maid, did fathom look upon her face, saw virtue unafraid. Idea now caught in youngster's head, returned, new verse to write. Called maiden's weight a blessed freight, boy's poem came out right. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. (laughs) 